Okay, I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 as we wrap up this study. Hasn't it been fun going through this book? Matter of fact, that's going to be the title of the message, Wrapping Up Under the Sun's Journey. See, Solomon's journey has been some more journey to take. And we've experienced a lot with him. Traveling from the depths of despair through the valley of uh, despondency uh, to the point of disillusionment. When uh, you're caught in the jaws of that horizontal perspective, that under the sun perspective, as Solomon was so much in his journey, all you can do is scream skepticism. That's it. In his scream of skepticism, the preacher shouted over and over again his humanistic and empty philosophy all throughout his journey. What would he say? What he began with and what he's ending with. Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. In Ecclesiastes 12, 8. He began with it in the first chapter. In other words... What life offers a person in our fallen world is just vanity. Vanity of vanities. Although his view has primarily been that of humanism under the sun, occasionally the preacher would look up beyond the horizon and see the clouds and beyond the clouds and have a brief view from a heavenly perspective, God's perspective. But that was sporadic. Now that he is approaching the end of his journey, though, a strange light begins to shine. And oh, how glad we are. What a way to end. Hope emerges. Doubt begins to dissipate. And here Solomon once again begins to view life from the vertical, not the horizontal, leaving hope for the reader. So let's begin with verse 8 of chapter 12. We read, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. In addition to be a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge as he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and the masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They're given by one shepherd. Notice the capital S there. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing writing of many books is endless, and the excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion when all this has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment everything which is hidden whether it is good or evil let's pray father i just pray that you'll grace us with your presence in a very special way through your word touching our hearts our lives using the the message and the messenger but you being glorified through it all so just open our eyes to the truth the way that you would have us to see it Help us to be led by you and 
directed by you and may we obey you in every way that you show us tonight. Thank you for this opportunity. And Lord, we just want to honor and glorify you throughout this time. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The compiling of the book, he wanted us to know that this was not just something that he just threw together. It was a journey. And it was a journey led by God. He says in verses 9 and 10, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. What he wrote was upright and true. As Solomon looks back on the snapshots of the uh, scenes which he was presented with, or he's presented us with, he realizes what the uh, truth is, and apart from that truth is vanity. And the preacher tells about the crafting of his work. And he tells us that he pondered, it says, and he searched out. He arranged many proverbs. He weighed, in other words, his words carefully. That's very important. He wanted to communicate well. He wanted to communicate the truth, the truth that God was giving him. Shifting through them, thinking about them, and thinking about each and every one of them carefully and how to best put them together and communicate it to those listening and those who would read. He wanted there to be no question in the reader's minds as to what he was attempting to pass from his heart to theirs. So we're told that he chose the words that were delightful, it says. And delightful meaning winsome, easy to grasp, readily applied. He wanted to use the words that would be heard and easily understood. Now, this is wise words, especially for teachers, isn't it? Wise words for us as we go out to share the good news. Wise words for us, for us to communicate the truth to our children and our grandchildren. In other words, they should be delightful in the sense that we want them to be winsome. We want them to be understood, to be grasped. That is good communication. He tells us that he taught people knowledge and, and arranged proverbs. And a proverbs were, proverb was a truism that applies to life. First Kings tells us that Solomon wrote thousands of proverbs to help people navigate their life. He didn't just rule them, but he led them. And the preacher was not trying to turn the Israelites into mystics here. He uh, was not trying to navigate them in their journeys to just go off and read and not do anything. He was trying to navigate them to be holy. This is what not to do. This is the kind of life not to live. This is the only life that you can live that will be beneficial. So Solomon recognized that these words did not originate with him. But that ultimate, he says, shepherd. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. One shepherd. 
the true shepherd. So the preacher lets us know that these were not his words, nor were they words just loosely put together for use. They were words pondered. And that word pondered means weighing the words carefully. The root word means to sift. He fills them. He compares them. He debates with himself over them. He wrestles and sweats over them. Have you ever done that? Especially if you were preparing a speech or if you were preparing a Sunday school lesson or something along that line. You just wrestled with the message over and over again. How you were going to say it to the people. What you were going to say. What does this mean and how can you communicate it so that it will be heard and understood. And then praying that the Holy Spirit would take what you say and the people and their eyes of the hearts would be open to the truth. So he debates with himself. He wrestles and sweats over it. I've heard preachers who preach from church to church. And nothing wrong with that. Evangelists, a lot of them. They, one evangelist told me, he said, I prepare about 12 messages. That's it. 12 messages. He says, and those 12 messages, though, are well-tuned. And then after those 12 messages, I'll prepare two or three a year, whatever, and add to the list so that I'll have a few more. So that if I go back to that church, I can preach another one. And they not know it. Now, fine-tuning, that's fine. And that's good. But a teacher, a Sunday school teacher, a preacher, you're going, you think about it. You're, they're having to week in and week out teach and come up with material that is not so much repetitive in the sense of stories and different things like that and if they've been, they've been your Sunday school teacher over years then boom you know this is what they want to do they want to be fresh in what they teach and it takes a lot more than just Shooting from the hip, doesn't it? Takes a lot more than that. But not only that. They, know, they understand that these words are representative of God and His Word. And so who are you going to have to answer to? You're not going to have to answer so much to that class. It can be cutesy, it can be whatever, and then a lot of speakers will do that. Tell stories and, and just basically deal with that. But if you're going to preach the truth, you're going to preach God's truth, then you're going to be held responsible for it. And this is what he's letting us know. He's letting us know how important the word of God is. That's what he's telling us. So the preacher, preacher diligently pondered. He deeply searched. He carefully arranged the material. Not shooting from the hips. Comes, as I said, from much... Work, hard work, diligent work, and also much prayer. It comes from searching, digging, meditating, reading, arranging thoughts, thinking it through, and refusing to surrender to slothfulness. Would, and just think about it this way. That's what you want your teacher to do, isn't it? and your preacher. Would you, in comparison, would you want your lawyer who was defending you where you had been falsely accused to just shoot from the hip, to be cutesy up there? 
I mean, your life at stake, your, your well-being is at stake? Or, you would, or would you want him to study diligently, lay it out, carefully study it, choose the right words, and use his words carefully so as to communicate your case wisely to the judge or the jury or both? Solomon sought to find delightful words and write words of truth correctly, it says. He wanted to make sure he got the words of the message correctly. Yes, they were his, but they were inspired by God. They were the words of God. Well, if they were the words of God, why worry that much about them? Because he was representing God, and he knew this, and he was giving us God's message, not man's message. He, was, he wanted to give us God's words where we wouldn't have to worry about being misled by it. God oversaw the writing, of course, but the author's along with him, took grave pain in making sure on their part that they were correct, that they were hearing God correctly and what God wanted to communicate to us. And God then oversaw it. He didn't want just anyone just to throw anything together. He wanted them to diligently be into it. Look at the intent of the book, though. In verse 11, it says, The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They're given by one shepherd. What's a goad? It's a staff, isn't it? It's a staff that's used to prod an ox or sheep along the way. In other words, not only prods him along, but it helps him to stay on the right path. That's important, isn't it? Staying on the right path. David tells us that the, the rod all encourages us. It's not used to discourage us. God uses it to encourage us. In other words, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now, knowing that you're on the right path is a great comfort. And God's word can be used as that goad to keep us on that path. Solomon goes on to say that those who master the words of wise men are like well-driven nails. I like that. When entering a house during the day of Solomon, you didn't see uh, a coat rack or a hat rack. You saw pegs or nails driven into the wall. And there, those were there for coats and important articles to hang. One of the Old Testament, matter of fact, one of the Old Testament names for the Messiah in Zechariah chapter 10 verses 3 and 4 is the peg that comes from Judah. Who is that? The Messiah. The Messiah is a peg that you can rest on and I can rest on. You can hang your life on him and you can count on it. We're Christians and we should really be pegs, shouldn't we? We're to be Christ-like, and other people should be able to count on us. We should support them in Christ and be able to support them in Christ through the Word of God and by our living and by counsel, godly counsel. So what can God hang on our lives, we should be asking? What has He entrusted us with? Have we been faithful or have we given things away that he's entrusted us with the bible can direct anybody's life 
it's a goad in your life. But are we sensitive when God pokes us by yielding our lives to Him? So many times He tries to get our attention. And a lot of times the hurting is not used for comfort, but for discomfort because we reject it. We turn from it. But God intends it to comfort us, to keep us on the path. So that we won't stumble and, get, and hurt ourselves and, and hurt our lives and, and those around us. But so often we are driven away by it because of our own rebellion. Just because the Bible is inspired doesn't mean that it's going to help us. Even if we read it, there's no guarantee that we will be strong. Only as we study and master it. Only as we listen to the Holy Spirit speaking to us through it. Only as we yield to it and benefit that we will benefit from it. It's not how many times you read through the Bible. It's not how many times the Bible has been in your hands. It's how many times the Bible's been through you. That's the key. Do, you, do we have a time every day, and this is something that we all need to ask ourselves, where we would draw to spend time with God, letting Him speak to us through His Word and to us, to Him through prayer? Do you go to God with the Word, uh, uh, you know, every day, ready to allow it to go to you and change you? Are we sensitive to that? And he says there are warnings. And so he gives us some warnings about books. He says, but beyond this, my son, be warned. Writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the soul. Solomon says that there is no end to the number of different ideas men will invent. So many of them have the way. The truth, they say. They have the way to happiness, in other words. Fulfillment. You can read and you can study for hours on end and, and uh, never exhaust the full store of human knowledge. I mean, it's just so much. But you can be sure that none of these ideas or those ideas with, uh, that are contained in those books are infinite. Nor are they absolute and perfect. Man in himself can never come up with anything that will take the place of the Bible, which is inerrant. It is, a, it is God's Word. It's perfect. It may be uh, enjoyable to investigate all these neat little ideas that men have and all these positive uh, classes that you can go to and books that you can read about and all that. Uh, you know. But it's also wearying to the soul because after a while you see that Positive thinking is only positive thinking. It will not fill the soul unless it's filled by Jesus Christ. This is why education cannot bring about rebirth. It has no power to create spiritual life. There is no plan B. There is no other way to know God than immerse yourselves in His Word and allow the Spirit of God to speak to you be convicted, be born again, and continue to, to instruct you. Which leads us to verses 13 and 14. 
instruction that needs to be heeded. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. As we look at this, another way to interpret the last part of this verse is this is the whole of man, you could say. When all is said and done, what do we do? He tells us to fear God and keep his word. That's the whole of man. That's the whole of women. That's the whole of mankind. Charles Ryrie interprets that verse to mean that this is what man is all about. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And, and isn't that what Solomon ended up saying, basically? I mean, that's what he was telling us. The first thing that Adam knew, if you go back to Adam in the garden, after God had made him, was that he had been created by his creator, God. They had a perfect relationship at that time. Everything else, Adam learned about creation, his work, the rules for living in the garden. His wife, Eve, was born out of the context of relationship with God. That relationship made everything else make sense. People are trying to make sense without God, and it just won't work. If Adam had been shown anything of the creation apart from God, he could not have understood it correctly. The chief end of man is to what? Know God. When he starts, when, you know, we start by knowing God, everything else seems to make sense. But, of course, this part of this was lost in the, uh, the fall. It can be redeemed to a degree as we come by way of the atonement and God begins to open our eyes to the truth again. But we still will struggle with the old ways. It won't be perfect. He is the web that unites everything into a meaningful whole. God is. Solomon concludes Ecclesiastes like you might expect. When all has been heard, keep his commandments. For this is the whole of man. But this statement assumes something. And that assuming is that God can be known. A lot of people don't think he can be known, but he can be known. And it also assumes something else. That God has given his commands. And we can know those commands and we can obey them and should obey them. God made himself known to the Jews. That's why in almost every single verse from Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14, he meant, uh, mentioned uh, it is most precious co commodity that God has given man. It is relationship of himself. This is what he's telling his people. They've never ascended to the heights and beauty that they could have reached without that relationship to God. That's how, you know, we should feel also 
Um, I don't know about you, but if you let any kind of tree, like pecan tree or whatever, be overtaken in its growth with other vines, they'll just suck the life out of it, won't they? And you have to cut it away to bring the life and nourish it back, and you'll have to nourish it back to life. And this is the way it, it is with Christians. They're called and converted by God, but yet so often they never really look like what they ought to look like. Because of why? Because they've covered themselves with junk, debris. And light and truth can't get to them. All their energy is spent on shallow-rooted weeds that curl up around their bodies and choke the growth out of them. Solomon shows us how we can clear away the brush. And it's not by going and taking some kind of drug and having some kind of experience or eating some kind of mushrooms and have a vision. You don't have to go to a cave and live in it. Matter of fact, you don't have to go anywhere. God has made himself known in a document. And this is what he's talking about. To know God is a matter of diligence so and discipline in the things of our soul. That's why you come to him. It takes diligence and discipline and effort. Now, what is your relationship to him and his word? That's the key. In World War II, one of the great terrors of English coast was a German battleship, the Bismarck. It outran everything in the English fleet. Launched in 1939, the Bismarck was the most dominating battleship ever built. It displaced 52,600 tons and had eight 15-inch guns. Its top speed was 30 knots. On May the 24th, 1941, a British uh, group of uh, ships or planes spotted the Bismarck, and most of the entire British fleet was sent to intercept it. And one of the first ships to reach the area was the Hood, which was promptly destroyed by the Bismarck. Only three of the 2,000 crew members from the hood survived. So on May 26, several more British ships caught up with the Bismarck. The great ship began pulling away from the British ships like it always did when suddenly it began zigzagging in the ocean. Then it did a big U-turn and headed towards the English fleet. The fleet attacked with as many shells and torpedoes as they could fire. But nothing happened. Then one time, a biplane carrying torpedoes launched against this great ship and attacked. And one of its torpedoes just happened to hit, hit the Bismarck on the rudder causing it to lose its steering control and be at the mercy of the British fleet that overtook it. 
You see, you can have all the speed, firepower, engineering known to man. But if you don't have the ability to navigate, you are in trouble. This is what Solomon is telling us. You're at the mercy of the sea. That's what happens when we don't know our Bibles. We get stunted like a tree that can't grow. Overtaken by the weeds and the brush around it. You see, this is why God has made you. He's made you to know him as a foundation for everything else in your life. Everything. On the basis of your intimate relationship with him. Getting a job, getting married, having kids, building a life. Every aspect of our life should be bound together by the common theme of our faith and dependence on God. We cannot enjoy life the way God intended us to enjoy it. Until we understand this. Why then have we allowed God to be taken out of our churches, out of our lives, really, out of the center of our lives? Activity is becoming more important than that. Other things becoming more important than God. Why shouldn't we talk about the schools and the Bible being taken out of that, God not being the center of our schools anymore? Why should it be when it's not the center of the church so often? We say, oh, but I come to church. Oh, but I know churches, you know, they're doing this and doing that and doing this and that. But do they know God? And do they have a personal relationship with God? That's the main thing. If they do, well. But if we don't, then we're missing the boat. We're dysfunctional. And that's unfortunate. And this is what Solomon is telling us. He's saying, beware. Because one day, everything will be laid before God. For God will bring, it says... Every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or bad. God is the ultimate reality. All of us are dependent and contingent on something or someone. He is not. He needs nothing besides himself to sustain his life. And we can have eternal life with him through Jesus Christ and we can get to know him through his word. He is more interesting and delightful than any other subject can be. Matter of fact, we can never exhaust the character of God while here on earth. There will always be one more thing to marvel at. Where is the Bible in your life? Where is the Word of God? Better yet, where is the author of the Word of God in your life? Is he at the center? How important 
His Word of God. Are we reading it? Are we excited about it? Do we have that time where He speaks to us through it? Well, I'm not talking about just off-the-hip type of little study. Devotions, those are good. I'm talking about getting somewhere alone with God and Him with you and allowing Him to speak to you. Are our churches doing that? Are we too busy? Satan loves for us to be busy. Satan loves for churches to be busy. Doing things. Nothing wrong. You know, he'll let us do the right things. But if we're so busy being busy, are we having time with God? You see, those things should be motivated out of spending time with God. Not replacing God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I want to thank you that